I was born in the darkest ignorance, and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torch of knowledge. I offer my respectful obeisances unto him. Shri Chaitanya Mano Vistam Stapitam Jena Bhutale Swayam Rupa Kadamayam Tadatit Swapadantikam when will Srila Rupa Goswami Prabhupada, who was established within this material world, the mission to fulfill the desire of Lord Chaitanya, give me shelter under his lotus feet? Vancha kalpatarubhyascha kripa sanubhayavacha patitanam pavanebhyo vaishnavebhyo namonamaha. I offer my respectful obeisances unto the Vaishnav devotees of the Lord. They are just like desire trees and can fulfill the desires of everyone. And they are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaurabhaktavrinda I offer my respectful obeisances unto Shri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Lord Nityananda, Shri Advaita Gadadhar Pandit, Shri Thakur, and all the devotees of Lord Chaitanya. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. I pray that Sri Sri Radha Kalachanji, Srila Prabhupada, and Srila Gurudev use me as an instrument so that them, their message can flow through me to give me the words to serve the Vaishnavas listening. So today is Tuesday, September 28th, 2021. I'm Jay Radha, and we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Creation. Chapter 9, The Passing Away of Bhishmadeva in the Presence of Lord Krishna. Text 48. Tato yudhisthiro gatva Saha Krishna gajavayam Pitaram santvayam asa Gandharim chatapasvinim Tato yudhisthiro gatva Saha Krishna gajavayam Pitaram santvayam asa Gandharim chatapasvinim Tato yudhisthiro gatva Saha Krishna Gajavayam Pitaram Santvayam Asa Gandharam Chaptapasvinam Tata Thereafter Yudhisthira Maharaj Yudhisthira Gatva Going there Saha with Krishna, the Lord, Gajavayam, 
in the capital named Gajabaya Hastinapur. Bitaram unto his uncle Dhritarashtra. Santvayam Asa consoled Gandharim the wife of Dhritarashtra and Tapasvinim an ascetic lady. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada. Thereafter, Maharaj Yudhisthira at once went to his capital, Hastinapur, accompanied by Lord Sri Krishna, and there he consoled his uncle and aunt, Gandhari, who was an ascetic. Purport. Dhritarashtra and Gandhari, the father and the mother of Duryodhan and his brothers, were the elder uncle and aunt of Maharaj Yudhisthira. After the battle of Kurukshetra, the celebrated couple having lost all their sons and grandsons, were under the care of Maharaj Yudhisthira. They were passing their days in great agony over such a heavy loss of life and were practically living the life of ascetics. The death news of Bhishmadev, uncle of Dhritarashtra, was another great shock for the king and queen. Therefore, they required solace from Maharaj Yudhisthira. Maharaj Yudhisthira was conscious of his duty and he at once hurried to the spot with Lord Krishna and satisfied the bereaved Dhritarashtra with kind words from both himself and the Lord also. Gandhari was a powerful ascetic, although she was living the life of a faithful wife and a kind mother. It is said that Gandhari also voluntarily blindfolded her eyes because of the blindness of her husband. A wife's duty is to follow the husband sent per cent, and Gandhari was so true to her husband that she followed him even in his perpetual blindness. Therefore, in her actions, she was a great ascetic. Besides that, the shock she suffered because of the wholesale killing of her 100 sons and her grandsons also was certainly too much, especially for a woman. But she suffered all this just like an ascetic. Gandhari, a woman, is no less than a Bhishmadev in character. They are both remarkable personalities in the Mahabharata. An interesting concept of asceticism. So I was thinking, what is what is an ascetic? What is what what comes to mind when you hear the word ascetic? Someone who performs great austerities for the purification of mind, body, soul. That is pretty much the the definition. It's practicing strict self denial as a measure of personal and especially spiritual discipline, austere in appearance, manner, or attitude. And asceticism is the practice of the denial of physical or psychological desires in order to attain a spiritual ideal or goal. So I was thinking austere is another very, like, harsh word, right? So what does that mean? It's stern and cold in appearance, somber, grave, morally strict, Markedly simple or unadorned, giving little or no scope for pleasure. And I thought, this is not how I practice Krishna consciousness, with this level of strict austerity, you know, lack of pleasure. So 
So when I think of that word austere, I think of someone who's cold and stern and unaffectionate. And that's not generally terms I would associate with devotee. I mean, the word devote, you know, devotion, it, to me, it brings um, up feelings of love, feelings of, of um, affection, warmth, right? I don't think of someone who's a devotee as being cold and, and stern and austere. Even Srila Prabhupada, he's, he was very strict, but he was also very loving. So there's this balance between the two. So I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about that austere life, and I was like, well, I don't think I could live like that, you know, with such austerity and denying, like, pleasure, right, giving little or no scope for pleasure. And and then I was thinking about Bhagavad Gita chapter 6, um, verse 17, one who is regulated in their habits of eating, sleeping, recreation, and work can mitigate all material pains by practicing this yoga system. So really, we can look at regulation as a way of austerity. In 6.4, Krishna says, The person is said to be elevated in yoga when having renounced all material desires, one neither acts for sense gratification nor engages in fruitive activities. So I was thinking, it's not that we give up all pleasure, we give up material pleasure. So oftentimes when, you know, when I'm talking to someone who isn't very familiar with Krishna consciousness, they think, well, don't you ever have any fun? You know, do you just deprive yourself, you don't drink, you don't eat meat, you don't smoke, you know, you don't drink coffee. What do you do? You know, how do you have fun? How do you relax? And, you know, why is it important for us to have fun? Why is it important for us to feel pleasure? Well, it's because that's our constitutional nature, our soul, as the spirit soul, we're eternal, full of bliss. It means we're eternally full of pleasure. And we're constantly seeking that pleasure from, you know, we're here in the material world, so we're seeking it from material nature, which is very whimsical. Material nature is very whimsical. Um, We're at the mercy and the whims of the three modes of material nature, you know, goodness, passion, and ignorance. We want to be as much in the mode of goodness as possible, but that's still a material mode, and it still will have its ups and downs. So it's not that we don't have pleasure in this material world. It's that this pleasure is very temporary, and it's filled with pain. It's filled with duality. We talked a lot about duality last last week. And so with duality, it means that you don't get all pleasure. You have to take some pain with it. In positive psychology, which is a field of study I've been really interested in lately, it um, they say that Pain is mandatory, it's necessary, but suffering is optional, right? So we all will have experienced pain, but how do we react to that pain? What do we do with that pain? How do we let that pain take control of us, or do we control the pain itself? That determines whether or not we're suffering. And I bring this example up again because it's just, to me, it's so um, clear you know, my sister and I were talking about my nephew. She just got back from visiting with him. And if you guys have been listening, you know that my nephew's now about 14 months old, and he's walking, and he's 
when I was there last, he was walking, holding our hands, and she just said, no, he just gets up and walks. You know, he needs to hold on to something to get up, but after that, he just walks around. And You know, if he falls, he just gets right back up, and he, you know, walks. And I was thinking, you know, as adults, we are so, like, self-conscious about anything that we do. Oh, my God, what if I fail? What if this doesn't go right? What if it's not perfect? Maybe I shouldn't try it at all. But as babies, when we're not really affected by all of this, our mind as much, our thoughts, right? Then we're, we fall and we think nothing of it. We just like, you know, fall, laugh it off, get up and walk, get back up and walk. I mean, even if you think about, like, if you're going on stage and you see sometimes, like, in the Oscars and somebody's going up on stage and they trip, right? And, and it's so embarrassing. Like, if you were to, first of all, if a lot of people have, um, struggle with speaking in front of people. So let's say you were called on stage and you were struggling to speak in front of people and the first thing that happens as you're walking on stage is you trip and you fall. I mean, who in that, in that scenario will get up and give their speech or, you know, and not be nervous with, you know, and just, or maybe they may even walk off and say, forget it, I can't do it. I fell. I'm so embarrassed. And falling is a part of life. Failure is a part of life. We're going to fail. There's no doubt about that. It's what we do with that. How do we compensate? How do we react to such failures, to challenges in life? So when we're talking about asceticism, it's how do we deal with the pain that comes to us, right? So I know I personally don't go seeking pain. You know, that's why I find that these words like austere and ascetic to be very harsh because pain will come. You know, I don't have to go seeking out challenges and suffer, you know, like the pain. That will come. But what I can control is how I react to that pain. How do I let that pain control me? How do I let that challenge control me? So in the case of, you know, unadulterated babies, they don't let it bother them. They fall, they get right back up. So we can see, like, that the suffering that we have is all in our mind. And if we can get free from that suffering that we cause our own selves, then we're a little bit closer to becoming, you know, to having more pleasure in our lives, to having more joy, bliss in our lives, right? So we are, by nature, blissful and we're full of pleasure, and we're constantly seeking it. But the material world full of dualities doesn't let us really fully engage in that. So we have to figure out how to engage in pleasure, because we can't go through life not having pleasure. Even when we chant our Hare Krishna mantra, I've I've said this before, but we're looking for pleasure with that. We're looking for some sort of peace with that. Otherwise, why would we chant? Yes, in theory, we chant because we want to become closer to Krishna. We want to develop develop our relationship with Krishna, uncover it, really, because it's already there. We just have to discover it for ourselves and deepen that relationship. But when we're chanting, sometimes we're not thinking about that. So what keeps us chanting? 
What keeps you chanting? So you made this promise, and so you chant your 16 rounds because of the promise. But who will know? If you don't chant, who will know? So why do you still chant? Great answer. So he says that slowly, slowly the taste will come, and Krishna will see the effort. So two things that you said in your answer, which is pretty much why most of us chant, right? To please the guru. We've made the promise. And we keep that promise, again, to please the guru. And then we have hope and faith that we will find that pleasure from Krishna. And every once in a while, we get the glimpses of those pleasure, of that pleasure, of the bliss that we can attain from chanting good quality rounds. And that every once in a while is almost enough to keep us going, to keep the faith going, that when we chant, we'll find that pleasure. Otherwise, it's hard to chant. So we do, most of us chant because we've made the promise. We make, we chant out of commitment. We chant because of discipline. We've created this discipline in ourselves. And that's also a part of asceticism. It's practicing strict self-denial as a measure of personal and especially spiritual discipline. So we chant as a matter of discipline. But our chanting, we don't want it to be harsh and stern and austere. We want our chanting to be full of bliss, to be pleasurable. And if it's not pleasurable for us, we want it to be pleasurable for Krishna. So in order for it to be pleasurable for Krishna, it has to be pleasurable for us. So we've been chanting, I know for me personally, I've been chanting because of Discipline out of habit. You know, as, um, and I mentioned this always as well, because health is a big, you know, uh, big purpose of mine, right? I'm physician, retired physician, and I love coaching people on living a healthy lifestyle. And that really just comes down to eating healthy, exercise, um, sleeping well, stress, you know, managing your stress, finding sense of community, avoiding risky substance use. These are the main things that help build our health in our bodies and even our minds. So I was, I'm was i part of this challenge with a few of my doctor friends that are also lifestyle medicine physicians. In part, and this is a 30-day challenge, and what we're doing is we're taking screenshots of our exercise. Like if you have a, I have an Apple Watch, so it keeps track of my exercise. And then we're, you know, taking pictures of the meals that we ate. Well, if anyone knows me, I don't really cook, so I eat pretty much the same meals every single day. It's like smoothies and salads. Don't need to cook. It does take a lot of prep. You know, I do spend a lot of time cutting vegetables, but I don't cook it. Um, and so, you know, we're coming at the end, and somebody's like, wow, you are very disciplined in your exercise and in your, you know, your salads and your smoothies. Like, you're committed to that. And I was like, yeah, it's the power of habit. And then also I, you know, like in the text I talk about, like I also meditate daily, so I'm like checking off, you know, meditate, mantra meditation, you know, reading. These are things that I find that are important as well, feeding our mind as well as feeding our bodies. And um, and I was thinking about that, and I was like, well, that's the power of habit, right? 
I've created this habit within myself that, you know, this is how I eat. This is the activities that I perform. And chanting, in a way, has become a habit, right? Like, I've become habituated to chanting the Maha Mantra on beads. But really, chanting is not a habit. It's something that we want to do. Like, if you're, you know, if I'm going to see my sister and we're hanging out, but I'm only doing it as a habit, then she's not going to feel the warmth and affection. She's going to feel like it's more of an obligation, like I'm punching a time clock. Okay, I've spent my two hours with you. Now I'm going to go. You know, who likes that? Nobody likes that feeling of feeling like, oh, you just put in your time with me. So Krishna is happy that we're engaging in this habit, but he wants more. He wants us to feel his love and affection and realize that when we're chanting, we're spending our time with him. So we want to engage in these loving behaviors. You know, we want to be stern and austere with material energy, but only insofar as using it for our own pleasure. So if we're going to, you know, like the microphone here, I could use this to, um, oh, I'm going to become a celebrity and let me use this microphone to do speaking engagements. And if I was a singer, then I could sing, right? And then the microphone has no value. But if I'm using this microphone to engage in Krishna's glories, spread the the pastimes of Krishna, you know, engage in the service that I'm meant to do, which is public speaking, educating, and I'm using that in Krishna's service, and this microphone becomes more than just a material object. It becomes a, a tool, a resource that's being used in Krishna's service. So it also becomes spiritualized. So in the same way, everything that we have around us, if we're using it for Krishna instead of for our own pleasure, that's a level of asceticism. If I have a nice, comfortable bed, and sleeping on that bed allows my body to rest, and then I'm able to perform my services even better. Um, you know, I, again, is another big thing with me is sleep is um, one of the habits that I really need to improve on. Right. So I know that when I get good sleep, I feel refreshed the next day. I'm able to do more. I'm engaging more in what my services are. When I don't get enough sleep. I'm doing the same services, but it's not with the same amount of vigor. And, you know, I use a lot of what I do is using my thought process, right? Intelligence, brain. Um, And when I don't get enough sleep, I find that my thoughts aren't as coherent. You know, they're not, they don't make as much sense when I'm talking to someone. Or I'll have to explain it, or I forget words. Um, But when I get sleep, like, that doesn't happen. So... Part of what would be austere for me is to make sure that I'm getting my six or seven or eight hours of sleep instead of less sleep. For some people, less sleep is going to be better for them so because then sleeping too much makes them overtired during the day. So we each have our own levels of austerity, and what's good for one person isn't necessarily the same for another person. And we can't judge someone else's levels of austerity based on our own levels of austerity. Like something that we find to be very austere, someone else might find to be opulent. Like This is so much. And what someone else finds opulent, we might find that to be austere. Like, oh, you know, someone might find 
um, just having a cushion on the floor to sleep on to be opulent. And I find that to be very austere. Like, I can lay on a yoga mat for, what, 10 minutes max, and then it's like, okay, I need something softer to lay on, you know. Um, So we each have our own levels, and really what it comes down to is um, truthfulness within ourselves, right? So I can do some mental gymnastics and say, you know, yes, I need this iPad in my service to Krishna because, you know, I use it to create my lectures, and I use it for this and that, and um, but it does, is it really necessary? You know, I could do the same thing on pen and paper. I could, you know, um, do, I mean, I have an iPhone, so I could do it on my iPhone as well. So it's like we have to be honest about what it is that we're doing for our own pleasure and what it is that we're doing for Krishna's pleasure or what, uh, what it is that we're dovetailing between the two. And sometimes you can do some mental gymnastics to make that happen. And that's okay. The, you know, at some point, that's fine. That's what level of bhakti or devotion on our spiritual journey that we're at. And eventually, it's about doing everything for Krishna's pleasure. Right? It's not that we start off immediately saying, okay, I'm going to give up all of this stuff and do everything for Krishna's pleasure. It's that we do it according to where we are at. We don't want to falsely renunciate. But I also think it's important to be honest about where you're at. If you're doing something for your own pleasure, I'm not going to say it's bad or good, but just be honest, right? Like if you're, Especially if you're honest with yourself, then you know how much you still have to progress. Again, it's just like the GPS. If you don't put in, if the GPS system, you know, doesn't know where you are, how can it give you proper directions on where to go? So if you, you know, if it can't pick up, sometimes if you're going to, let's say, I'm going to drive to Denton, but I don't tell the GPS where I'm at, it doesn't know if it tells me to go north or south, east or west, right? So it's the same thing if I'm not honest with where I'm currently, what level I'm currently at in my spiritual progress. How do I know where to progress? You know, and when you try to falsely renunciate, you can only maintain that for so long. There is the belief of fake it till you make it. But at the same time, we want to have that desire to make it. And so sometimes we fake it till we make it, but we don't really have the desire to make it. We have, we still have our attachments. And so when we're not a, an, um, honest about what our attachments are and our desires are, and we're trying to fakely renounce it, then those desires will keep coming up and tempting us until we can say, okay, yes, this is a desire. I understand this desire. And um, make a conscious decision as to whether or not you're going to indulge or not. Many times we don't make conscious decisions about a lot of things that we engage with in our lives. We just do it. It's habit. Um, we've done it all our lives. We don't realize why we're doing it. So it's important to have these kind of honest conversations. And that's part of being an ascetic. Right? Honesty is one of the things that we want to do as a form of austerity. because it's, it's not easy to be honest, especially with yourself. 
And if you're not honest with yourself, you're not honest with everyone else because you're not bringing in that true nature of yourself. So it's not easy. I think I spent a lot of the pandemic lockup of doing this honest reflection on myself. And when you, like, realize, you know, you, you acknowledge where you're at, what your flaws are, what you're dealing with, what your insecurities are, it's hard. I mean, sometimes I just want to crawl back into bed and not deal with all of that stuff. You know, it, again, another thing that I often talk about is my addiction to TV. I mean, after this year, I understand a little bit more about my addiction to TV. Because it's, when you watch TV, you don't, I don't have to pay attention to how I'm feeling, what thoughts I have. The mind kind of like, it's a way of quieting down the mind just as much as alcohol is. Alcohol is a way to numb the pain of the world. So again, we come back to pain. And numbing from the pain is not the way we break through the pain and, and suffering. Because as long as you're ignoring the pain, you're still going to suffer. When you acknowledge the pain and then start to go, okay, what is this pain teaching me? What can I learn from this pain? Why is Krishna sending me this pain? then it becomes different. Again, we don't have to seek it out. It's just going to come. So, you know, from there, you can do that work, do not do the work. But when you start to do the work, then your chanting becomes a different reflection. And it comes from understanding. I know when I first started getting into trying to chant quality rounds over quantity rounds, um, one of the hardest parts is facing your mind when you're chanting, you know, and then facing the feelings that come from chanting, you know, like there's this feeling of inadequacy, of um, that Krishna and Guru have done so much for you, and what are you doing in return? And it's hard to acknowledge those kind of feelings. And so it's easier to not chant the quality rounds in one sense. So when you start acknowledging your feelings and and uh, dealing with them instead of trying to numb them or cover them up, then that comes through in, in chanting your rounds. It becomes much more joyful when you start feeling your feelings when you are chanting. And really, you know, I've heard Prabhupada quoted as saying, you know, someone asked him, you know, I can't uh, turn off my mind when I'm chanting. And Prabhupada's like, what does your mind have to do with chanting? We don't chant with our mind, we chant with our hearts. So heart comes from feeling. So when we're chanting, we want to invoke feelings of love, of pleasure, of servitude, of gratitude towards Krishna, towards our guru. So when we're chanting, we can chant in that mood. Um, one easy way to start to invoke that mood is before you sit down and chant, think of three things that you're grateful for that Krishna or your guru have done for you and use that gratitude while you're chanting and infuse it into your chanting. And the more you think about things that you're grateful for, that you're, even if you, you know, become a, be challenging a little bit and say, you know, um, this challenge happened to me, and I'm grateful for it because I learned this. So thank you, Krishna, for showing me that 
you know, this material world is full of misery, and you're the only salvation, right? So that could be one prayer that you have, but once you start thinking of gratitude, then your chanting comes to a whole nother level, and you chant in that mood of gratitude. So I'll end there and ask if there are any questions or comments. Exactly. So um, the comments were a couple of comments here that the main thing about for us as practicing um, Krishna devotees of asceticism and austerity is to do everything for Krishna's pleasure and seek pleasure in pleasing Krishna. And then the four regular principles, um, which are no meat, fish, or eggs, no intoxication, no gambling, and no illicit sex, and then chanting the, our, um, the Maha Mantra a certain amount of times, avoiding the ten offenses, of which one is to get, you know, offend other Vaishnavas. Um, so we want to get along as much as possible with other Vaishnavas. And then the other point that was made was that in the purport, Gandhari is elevated, is praised as being as the same level of um, austerity as Bhishma Dev in character. Yeah, and I thought that was interesting as well. So we can see that austerities can be performed by anyone. And her austerity was to take on the mood of her husband, of, you know, he didn't have sight. So she also voluntarily gave her sight, right? And then she also was a very loving wife and mother. Um, and Bhishma Dev's big austerity was to say he was never going to get married. Right? And he, de- he denounced the throne. I mean, he was the rightful heir to the throne, but he denounced it and said he would never get married because maybe his wife would want the throne. Right? So that was a great austerity that they both performed. Um, you know, of course, the whole Mahabharata would have been a much different saga if Vishmadev had made a different vow or didn't make that vow, right? And said, "Well, yeah, I'll get married and." But that's not how it turned out. So. Yeah. That's right. We have to know where we are to be able to go to, to know where we need to go. That's absolutely true. Okay, if there are no other questions, I'll end there. Dharantara Srimad Bhagavatam Ki Jai.